Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Persevering in Hope, with a message titled, Carrying On in Faithfulness. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Years ago, Eugene Peterson wrote a book entitled, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. So let me read a small portion from that book. Peterson wrote, There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure, end quote. You know, whether or not you think Peterson is right when he analyzes our day, that religion is like, you know, a tourist mindset, go for a visit, come back and be refreshed. And by the way, isn't that an interesting image? But whether you think he's right or not, one thing remains. The long-term apprenticeship he speaks about has always captured only a minority. A long obedience in the same direction is the fruit of a life well-lived. How few accomplish that. And yet we admire those who've been faithful for a lifetime. Almost no one admires the man or a woman whose life is a series of fits and starts, marked by major U-turns and then a U-turn again and again or a person whose life is tainted by major sins that vilify them, we don't care how gifted that person is. We care about the character they've exhibited. And that's it. We may want the instant success story to be true in our lives, but we actually admire the person who's been faithful for a lifetime. Probably the reason for that apparent contradiction is because lifetime faithfulness seems so unattainable to many. And I've got good news today. Lifetime faithfulness to Jesus is not unattainable at all. It is for you, my dear listener, if you'll have it. As we read through 2 Thessalonians, we've noticed that this church is made up of men and women who have not been in the faith for a long time. But in spite of the fact that they are still new, Paul believes that this group of Christians will be among those who are noted for a lifetime of obedience in the same direction. And so for us, we should take their example to heart. What is it that we can learn from them? I think the first five verses of chapter 3 provides us with a wonderful example of why Paul was so encouraged by this group of believers, and so it also provides us with some of the keys that we need for lifelong faithfulness. There are in this passage three keys that we're going to want to discuss. And I begin by reading 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 5. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So please notice the three things that we should learn from this passage. First, we need to make it a lifetime work that we're constantly in prayer for others, and more specifically, 
for those who are charged with preaching and teaching the word and bringing the gospel to those who have never heard. And then second, we need to become convinced that it is God himself who will give us the power to carry on in lifelong faithfulness. The power will come from him and not from us, and he can do it. And then third, we need to take this matter of humility and daily obedience as the goal of life. So let's start with the first item, the matter of praying for others. Paul wants the church in Thessalonica to be active in praying for him. And we should notice that it was a common practice for Paul himself to be praying for the churches. And so we've also seen that on two occasions, that is twice in this short letter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul has been offering up a prayer to God, prayer of thanksgiving for the believers there. And so Paul's praying for them constantly. So in that sense, he's been their role model. But now Paul insists that they should turn around and pray for him. So I'm going to stop here and say, look, it's important for all believers to be in prayer for one another. It's a part of living the Christian life that we make prayer for others an essential part of our life in Christ. It makes you other-focused rather than being self-focused. And when we see God answering our prayers for others, we're going to be encouraged that God is answering our prayers. So notice that Paul wants two prayers. First, he wants them to pray for his effectiveness in delivering the message. He wants the gospel to make rapid progress, and so he asks for prayer. Paul knows that the gospel doesn't progress because he's so gifted, although he is gifted. But the gift of salvation comes as a work of the Holy Spirit. And so for that reason, it's essential that the Thessalonians pray for him. They're praying in that way for the salvation of others. And perhaps Paul has in mind some of the hindrances to the gospel that he has seen. You know, for instance, in Thessalonica, we remember that a riot started in that city which was designed to prevent the gospel from being heard there. So Satan was at work to blind the minds of unbelievers, you know, introducing prejudices into their minds, false rumors, so that people won't listen. And you might also remember that shortly after leaving Thessalonica, Paul traveled to Athens, where the gospel was met with a fair degree of skepticism, so much so that at you know, one point, the philosophers in that city said, you know, what does this babbler have to say? <laughs> the condescension that can come from powerful people. And so the lesser people look at the powerful and the educated, and they come to a conclusion. I mean, it must be foolish stuff. And then you'll remember that when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then on to verses 22 and 23, he says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So from that, we must learn that it's always true. The message that Paul preached was a message the natural mind would reject, and Paul knew that wasn't a matter of his giftedness or his energy or the style of his presentation. It was a matter of the Spirit of God changing the human heart as he preached. And so it was all about prayer. There are many reasons why the gospel might not speed ahead, why it might be impeded. The very message of universal sin, the need for a Savior, well, that's a joy to some, 
but it causes great anger to others. And Paul was aware of the great spiritual forces of evil that were constantly at work to blind the minds of those who were listening. So knowing that to be the case, Paul wanted the believers in Thessalonica to know it was the case and to feel the burden that Paul felt for the ministry. They needed to get beyond their personal concerns and concern themselves with the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. Let me say this plainly. I don't think that any Christian can learn to be faithful, to have a long obedience in the same direction, unless they begin to be passionate about the things that God is passionate about. That is, the bringing of the gospel to the world. You know, if in our prayer lives or in our Bible study prayer groups, we only pray about, you know, Uncle Harry's cancer and our friend's exam at the university and someone else's troubled marriage and someone else who's lost their job, if that's the sum total of our praying, we have shown that we have not yet learned to pray well nor to be faithful. Prayer must concern itself with the proclamation of the gospel. Notice what Paul adds. He says, pray that the gospel may go forward speedily as it did among you. That is, in spite of stiff opposition in Thessalonica, did you notice? Do you remember how it was? There was a sizable group in spite of the opposition who heard and believed. Or listen to Luke's words, Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. See, here's what I think believers must do. We must fill our minds with true stories of where the gospel has been growing rapidly, and from that we should pray earnestly that similar things would happen in those regions where the gospel has not been progressing rapidly. We should be aware that gospel advancement is deadly serious. The lives and the souls of men and women are at stake. It should fill our compassion that men and women right now are outside of Christ. You know, I've often prayed for my own country. Lord, make it impossible to live in this country without having to decide what to do with Jesus. Therefore, O Lord, strengthen your ministers, strengthen your churches, open the hearts of those who do not believe. Let the gospel progress with great speed. If you're considering a vacation in 2024, we'd love to invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and the leadership team behind them on a Caribbean cruise event from April 5th to the 14th, 2024. This vacation opportunity will provide beautiful scenery, Time being refreshed and challenged by the Bible teaching of Dr. John, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and times of worship and song with feature musical guest Amanda Stott. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. For more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note, that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by those who participate. Paul has asked the believers to pray for him that the word of the Lord would progress speedily and be honored. And this is not all that they should pray. 
Verse two indicates the second part of their prayer and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. You know, it's fascinating to read this because Paul asked a very similar prayer from other congregations. Listen to what he asks from the Roman Christians. Romans 15, 30 to 31. I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Or think about what Paul wrote the Corinthian Christians in 2 Corinthians. First, he tells them that he experienced such affliction that he had been burdened beyond his ability to bear up. And then he says that it had become so difficult that he had despaired of life itself. And then in chapter 1, verse 11, he says to the church there, you must help us by prayer. You must help us by prayer. See, every Christian group should know about those who are on the front line bringing the good news of Jesus to many. They should recognize how Satan slings his arrows at them. These men and women must be the object of our prayers. We've got to see ourselves as providing aid to them by virtue of our prayers. And please notice Paul's telling words, not all have faith, he says. He means not everyone reacts positively to the gospel. Some will hear the most wonderful truths in history, and instead of reacting with joy and with faith, they're going to react with anger and with unbelief. Not everyone has faith. 2 Timothy 4, verse 14, Paul writes, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. You know, Jesus once told a parable of the wheat and the weeds, and you can read about it in Matthew 13. He said an enemy came and planted weeds in the harvest field to disrupt the size of the harvest. And when asked to explain the parable, he said the weeds represented the sons of the evil one. I'm sorry, did you hear that? The evil one, Satan, has sons. The definition of the sons of the evil one is those who are charged with a task of hindering the gospel. These are people who often lead the way when persecution breaks out. They're often the source of rumors against the gospel. They're the sons of the high priest who conspired to crucify Jesus. These men and women would seek to silence the gospel so it can never be heard again. In some places, they're legislators, people who have the force of law behind them, who pass laws against gospel advancement. In other places, they're a part of mobs who seek merely to kill. Here's God's call to all believers. We're called upon to pray earnestly, both that the gospel might go out with speed and that the sons of the evil one would have no opportunity in hindering the gospel. And Paul's asked the Thessalonians to pray in that fashion because he knows they have the spiritual maturity to do it. They will see where the true battle is being fought and they'll enter the battleground on their knees. We're talking about carrying on in faithfulness. The work of prayer for the advancement of the gospel is a mark of faithfulness. It demands that we take prayer seriously as well as that we think the results of prayer are felt. Yeah, of course, God could do everything without our prayers. But as the book of James reminds us, sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. God may decide to delay his actions, awaiting for his people to humble themselves and get on bended knee and plead for the advancement of the gospel and the salvation of many people. So let's just do it. Now, second, we're speaking about a long obedience in the same direction, continued faithfulness. So notice verse three. 
but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. You know, Paul's been requesting that the Thessalonian believers pray for him, but he's also aware of the desperate situation in Thessalonica. And notice how he addresses them. He says, God is faithful. This is how the second time he mentions this to them. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul said, May the God of peace sanctify you. And then in verse 24, he adds, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You know, in other words, there is a character trait of God. He will always do what he has promised, and he will see you through to a life of holiness. Or think of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8, where Paul tells the Corinthians that he's certain that God will sustain them until the end. And then in verse 9, just like he said to the Thessalonians, Paul adds, God is faithful. You know, we have the same formula. It's repeated in 2 Corinthians. It gets repeated in 2 Timothy 2.13. The writer of Hebrews, when he speaks about Sarah's faith, says in Hebrews 11 verse 11 that Sarah considered him faithful who had promised. And so Paul tells the Thessalonians that he's quite sure that the Lord will be faithful to them. See what he's doing? He's taking the doctrine of God's faithfulness, and then he's applying that personally to them. Paul says, I know that the faithful God will establish you. So so what does it mean? Paul means that God will establish them in the midst of their persecutions. That is, the persecutions they're experiencing will not hinder the ongoing growth and faith and the achievement of becoming all that God wants them to be. Nothing will hinder God's work in their lives. Paul says, I'm also convinced that the faithful God will guard you against the evil one. It's a very important point. Paul's not saying that God will protect them from the hour of persecution. That promise was not given. Nor is he saying that God will stop false teachers from ever preaching their false doctrines again. Indeed, suffering and false teaching will continue to be a problem. Nonetheless, there's something very important that God will protect them from. It is this. Satan is seeking to destroy these young believers' faith. He seeks to sow doubt and a number of other things to put it in their way so that they might abandon their faith. Paul says, the faithful God won't let that happen to you. Now, we've seen two things that lead to lifetime faithfulness. First, we continue to pray for the advancement of the gospel. And second, we're confident that the faithful God will protect us. And now the third item, it's this. We should be confident that we'll be obedient until the end when we see the signs in us that are the signs of a new heart. Look at verse 4 again. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things we command. And here's something important to remember. Paul is playing a unique role in the church, a role that can't be repeated. He's one of the apostles, and as an apostle, he's not only been given the authority to establish churches, he's been given the authority to write scripture. Jesus has personally taught him, and the Holy Spirit has been overseeing his work so that every word that Paul writes is the very word that Jesus would want him to write. And I mention that because we shouldn't misunderstand verse 4. Paul's not saying every believer in Jesus should do everything that every Christian leader commands of him or her. Rather, Paul is saying, as a writer of Scripture, these Christians are to be obedient to everything that he writes. So the application is plain. We should have confidence when, 
It is our heart's desire to do those things that we find in Scripture. If there's an obedient heart within us, be encouraged. It's evidence that you're truly in Christ. Now, from that, you want to go ahead to verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. That is, knowing from your obedience that your hearts have been transformed, Paul now adds a prayer that he knows is going to be fulfilled in them. God, he says, will direct your heart. Well, in what way? Well, he's going to direct your heart to revel in the love of God, in the delight of God, and to find great joy in God. And then second, God will also direct your heart to constantly observe the steadfastness of Jesus. So when Paul says that God will direct your heart to the steadfastness of Christ, he means that God is going to direct your heart to constantly observe Jesus. Notice how steadfast he was, how he stayed on the same path. And as you learn from his obedience, take hope and be encouraged. So this is about a long obedience in the same direction. It's about starting out by walking in the Spirit and then ending up by still walking in the Spirit. Whether you're a believer for one year and the Lord calls you home, or whether you're a believer for 75 years and more and the Lord calls you home, it's one and the same. We take on a long obedience in the same direction. We carry on in the faithfulness that we see in Jesus until our death arrives or until he returns from us. May that be our story. Thanks, John. You know, I think this might be an important message for all time, but I think particularly for our day. So, so much seems to be pressing down on us, and despite our walk with Christ, courage can fail. How would you respond to those fearing failure today? I would respond by saying that if you are in Christ, he will direct your ways. You need to take hope in what he has promised. You need to claim verses like Romans 8, 28. You need to believe that even in your failures, God is working for your good. Know that in Christ, you cannot fail um, because he will not fail to do his good work in your life. So I want you to take courage. Believers should be known for our courageousness. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Persevering in Faith, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. God is the only true hope for living life in all its fullness. When we turn from the deadness of our sins, God sends refreshing life through Jesus. That's our national need. This is the message of Back to the Bible Canada, broadcast coast to coast to renew hearts and homes by the grace of Jesus Christ. Tracy recently wrote, you have brought me the life-changing news of the gospel in so many ways that I can understand and apply to real life. What a joy to hear of people growing through God's word. We're grateful to each of you for your prayers and support. We invite you to consider a one-time gift to Back to the Bible Canada, or make a monthly investment in this Bible teaching ministry through our Companions for the Gospel program. Our nation needs it. To give today or receive more information, visit backtothebible.ca 
or call 1-800-663-2425.